Hello and welcome to Talking Additive, episode 16. This is the 316L part. You can mill it, you can polish it, you can weld it, you can cut it. You can do basically everything you can do to bulk 316L. That was Tobias Rodelmeyer, business development manager for the ecosystem for ultrafuse metal filaments for BASF 3D printing solutions, who has focused on the company's metal extrusion filaments strategy since first joining the company in 2018. Ultrafuse 316L leverages unique BASF expertise in catamold materials, stretching back to their role in establishing metal injection molding technology and world-renowned magnetic metal particle tapes, among other innovations. To bring the production of stainless steel metal parts to those operating premium desktop FFF extrusion-based machines, such as Ultimakers, today. As soon as I got introduced to the technology, I realized that if you're not able to design for 3D printing, you're not able to really benefit. And that was Roger Selbing, head of sales for additive extrusion solutions within BASF's 3D printing solutions on the polymer-based extrusion filament side. BASF's entry into additive manufacturing came relatively recently, since 2011, but has quickly become a key priority for their new business developments, leading to the creation of BASF's 3D printing solutions, a wholly owned subsidiary tech startup that can lean on decades of expertise in performance polymers and chemistry strategies that grants it key advantages as a provider of 3D printing materials. More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. I'm Matt Griffin, and this is Talking Additive, a 3D printing podcast made possible by Ultimaker. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within manufacturing and on the factory floor? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 16th episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, materials, and support ecosystem that enables professional designers, engineers, and manufacturers to innovate every day. Ultimaker prides itself on solutions that are flexible, productive, and scalable. Its global team of over 400 employees works together to accelerate the world's transition to digital distribution and local manufacturing. My name is Tobias Rödelmeier. I'm the business development manager for our ultrafuse metal filaments. I'm placed in Heidelberg and I'm working for BSF Forward AM. And our group is within the Additive Extrusion Systems Group or Business Line. I met with Tobias this fall to discuss the metal FFF processes in fine detail as a part of the lead up to some exciting December announcements from his team right around the corner. While we are sadly just a week too early to tease them here, you'll have to join us on the 9th of December at our global webinar, where Tobias will return to join us along with Ultimaker Materials expert Andrea Gasparini to learn about their latest product launch in that area. That said, we concluded from our discussion that it would be helpful to go behind the scenes with the BASF metal and polymer extrusion materials teams to illuminate for talking additive listeners what is now possible in these areas and why this makes a difference to businesses today. Tobias works within the Metal FFF Extrusion Division and will focus on that story. And in the second half of the program, we'll introduce Roger from the Polymer FFF Extrusion Division to provide insights as well. Thank you, Tobias, very much for joining us today. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an honor to be here. Thank you, Matt. To know a little bit more about your background, what was your first exposure to additive manufacturing? The company BSF 3D Printing Solutions was founded in 2017, and it's only dedicated to additive manufacturing. And I started in that company. So I was from the beginning in additive manufacturing from BSF point of view. And I think it, it was clear, not only from the business point of view and strategy point of view, that additive manufacturing is an industry which will grow. And the prediction is that it will grow heavily. For me, it's a reasonable decision to invest by funding a company dedicated to those kind of uh, applications. I, I started originally as a project manager, not bound to a technology, but with the very first start and the first project, I was heavily into uh, metal FFF already. I, I was more or less addressed to digitalization and uh, a certain industry. But within a couple of months, it was clear that I will stick to Metal FFF. You can be too late, but you can also enter the market as a fast follower. And I would say that's what BSF did. They had a budget and they invested heavily. And just having the materials and the right budget to the right time, you can develop the largest player in additive manufacturing. And I think that what happened since the last three years Big companies invested heavily in additive manufacturing and also big OEMs dedicated resources in that direction. As an example of HP, as a printer OEM, heavily invested in additive manufacturing. I think from my personal point of view, not only because it's my employer, I think it, it was the right timing. We also make use of a lot of backlog of BSF. We do not produce polyamide, but polyamide is produced after, for example, our requirements. Same for resins or formulations. So you cannot say we, we are just that one small facility because we make use of what BSF is actually offering. From that point of view, headquarter is in Heidelberg, which is next to Ludwigshafen, where BSF is placed. We have acquired Sculpteo, which is in Paris. We acquired Innofil 3D in former times, which is in the Netherlands. There are much more companies set up advanced 3D. We have a North American team. We have an Asia Pacific team. So from that point of view, we have a lot of offices, and but we also have different uh, production facilities all over Europe. Let's go right to Ultrafuse. Mm -hmm. How would you introduce talking additive audiences to Metal FFF and the 316L that has launched? That's an excellent question. Usually I say you have an FFF printer and you're familiar with plastics. So you basically already have a metal printer. Our material is easy to use and works on every printer and with the uh, low investment barrier, because you can make use of our debinding and sintering network, you can transform indirect metal printing into metal. Basically, if you have a printer, you have a metal printer. Easy as is. We need to clarify that the part you receive is a metal part. There is no plastics inside anymore, and it is 316L. And 316L is defined via, depending on which certification route you take, Dyn ISO or ASTM. So there's an elemental composition behind it. Also means how much carbon is inside. And also it means what kind of microstructure it will have. This is the 316L part. You can mill it, you can polish it, you can weld it, you can cut it. You can do basically everything you can do to bulk 316L. There's minor differences, but they are mostly driven then by the actual surface entering in the process. What are some common types of parts and devices as good points of reference for the listeners that are made in 316L, irrespective of additive manufacturing? 
For me, 316L is always equipment in kitchen, in food industry, pharmacy. And it's a typical look if somebody looks into a professional lab. Usually this is 316L. High corrosion resistance and, and used in every kind of pharmacy lab. I'm a hobby brewer. For me, 316L is brewing equipment. That's great. Let's talk a little bit about this process. You'd mentioned that the project existed before you even joined. Yes. Uh, but it, it hadn't reached the, the public yet and wouldn't for another couple of years after you arrived. What is the, the history there? How did this project begin at BASF? Uh, it began in the catamol department. So that's the department which has basically developed and produces the metal injection molding feedstock. They made the first prototypes of filaments. You can backlog it with the application and patent which was applied. So there's a prior date, and I think it is back to 2016. So let's talk about, about MIM, about metal injection molding. Mm -hmm. That technology has been around for a long time, right? Usually you say it's around about 30 years. This is how long, and it's rising. So 30 years ago, what kinds of applications were, were put to metal injection molding? What I had heard and what I'd love clarification on, that it played a role in some of the metal films. I'm really curious about that because you look at the audio tape and data tape at that time, and it doesn't make you think of the same things as seeing a 316L physical part that you can produce. How are those related? Yeah, that's basically related to the carbonyl iron which is a industrial process to purify iron. So it's a chemical reaction. And at the end, you get a highly purified spherical iron particles. And this chemistry is very old. I think it's from 1925, it was invented from BSF. And basically they used scrap material to, to make very pure iron. And this iron was the source for um, the magnetic particles in the tape cassettes. But due to its high purity and spherical shape, it also was the source for the catamold feedstock. And usually that was for making physical objects already, right? Yes. The unique thing with uh, the catamold feedstock is its catalytic debinding. And the catalytic debinding is a full chemistry-driven debinding process. It's not a dissolving process. And by having only gas phase interactions, that means the gas of nitric acid is actually reacting with the polyoxymethylene, formaldehyde is formed, which is also a gas. And this process, which is fully driven by this catalytic debinding process, you achieve much faster debinding times. So you are 10 times faster than classical or conventional solvent debinding, just because you, you change from a, a solvent diffusion-driven process to a catalytic debinding process. When I heard it the first time, I was shocked why somebody would do that instead of using solvents. And the, the answer was, it's cleaner. And I could not understand what they meant because I have formaldehyde and I have nitric acid and it, it sounds very ugly. But at the end of the process, there's just a huge torch with a catalysator inside and it's just everything is burned off and you only have CO2, water and nitrogen. And instead of having organic solvents, which are contaminated, which need to be taken care. And then I realized why the one thing is a real industrial process because the MIM companies actually know that it might sound more complicated, but in the end it's faster and cleaner. Oh, that's great. I actually didn't know that. That's really helpful. 
So let's take a, a step back and look at the metal FFF process. Yes. If we talk about metal FFF, the the limitation is not the printing process, it's the debinding and sintering process. And uh, if you are familiar with FFF, you will take our material, that's no problem, you will produce very beautiful green parts. But the, nevertheless, if you make certain assumptions, you will not end up with a metal part in the end, like you would like to have it. So the, the limiting thing here is debinding and sintering. And this is complicated because you print it and you see it and you have it in your hand and it looks good. And in the end, it might not come out of the debinding and sitting process like it looks like now. And it's hard to understand what happened in between. To what degree is this a matter of learning to really design for the format? And what ways learning to better analyze the results of your print to, to understand where you'll have issues? So first of all, in general, when you would require support for your printing strategy, you would also require support for debinding and centering. Because after the debinding process, you do not end up with a very stable part because you have the brown part. So the majority of your 3D farming material is removed. You only have the backbone left, which is keeping the 3D shape. It's, it's been exciting to talk to, to customers of our 3D printing hardware and say, here's a capability that you have that you may not be familiar with, that you can make these metal parts. And that gets them very excited. They have a lot of assumptions about what this means. And, and they're looking for guidance of how to understand this process. You had mentioned how fragile the brown parts are and that you need to be mindful of support needs for that stage. Even if you have a successful FFF print that just, it seems like it's ready to go. How do you work with customers to help them really understand these steps so that they can they can optimize for it? Yeah, of course, we, we, we have a document available, our user guideline. Basically, this is the whole process chain from design, slicing, how you print, what, what is important, how you can treat your green part. So the whole process chain is actually in our design guideline. Additionally, to let's say, make it more practical. We also released a white paper on how you can do a stability analysis of your brown part in your uh, conventional CAD software. It's a material model. You can make a stress analysis. And with that, you usually get a, a light indication. This situation here would be red. This most probably will fail during the debinding process or sintering process. Rethink of the design, make it stronger or whatever. People usually talk about um, density. The density is mainly driven by slicing parameters. It's actually not the material, it's how you print your part and in which quality. Because every time you have a, a, a little void, a little gap, there's no material during the sintering process. So basically you have a void which is not sinteractive. The material, there needs always to be material. Basically you, you increase the void. I would imagine that a lot of FFF customers are more familiar with polymers than they are metals. This may be uh, a learning curve for them. What are some of the things that you tell them to help them understand this? It makes sense to be more mindful of voids, things that would not be visible on the outside that will have effects structurally thanks to these processes. But what are some of the assumptions that you think that they're likely to make that you help overturn in the guidelines, etc.? The first thing, use the profile of the marketplace. So there's one, one profile available. We will release three more profiles for certain applications in the future. And we will also redo the profile which is available right now. The other thing is what you also need to do is you need to know your system. And by knowing, you need to know the calibration or you need to know your flow. 
If you know what reality and theory in your slicer is, you are equipped with everything you need to, to make a full dense metal part. But this is also true for plastics. So it's, it's not metal unique. Uh, right. <laughs> to be honest, I think any material provider who's offering engineering grade materials, they have to contend with an expectation from some customers that these are magic boxes that will just make the thing that they have in mind, they forget that it is a process tool, mm -hmm. uh, always, for, regardless of material. Yes. Describe the on-site customer experience with FFF equipment of making those green parts. What's that like usually? And how do they get guidance to go from there to the next stage? We receive the feedback usually that it's very easy to print. It's very easy to process and it's really easy to handle. So usually there people are already amazed what, how easy it is actually. You need to know something about a material. That means you need to have something against warpage. If you have that, you, you're good to go. Basically, the majority of problems are done. So the, the printability is there, the processability is there, and you can easily and quick have a green part. That's no problem with the material. And a lot of people think that the green part is actually very fragile. It's not. Basically, it's a polymer-based, highly filled material, and uh, we treat our green parts quite heavily. So we, we blast them, we machine them, we drill them, uh, we use sandpaper, and we also ship them without any problems. Of course, you need to be uh, reasonable for shipping. You would also put your, your plates and uh, cups within some bubble foil when you ship it. But nevertheless, we never had problems that our parts were uh, destroyed when arriving at the debinding and sintering facility. I think it's really helpful to bring up this note because I, I've seen it repeated out there in the field that worry that green part is fragile. Tell me a little bit about the process of generating the profile for 360NL. What sort of processes and considerations went into offering that one? So the first one, I would say it was our first one. <laughs> so that means also we used it, we were happy with it, and we released it. And then we start working with it and then we realized I would tune this and I would tune this and I would tune this. And we had more and more users using this profile and everybody was tweaking the parameters. Of course, we had our test geometries. Now comes a new geometry, a new test object, new customer parts. And compared to what we have right now, my profile looks completely different. Everybody has its own fingerprint in the profiles. But for the marketplace profile, we all sit together, all Cura users, and we went through every parameter. And we discussed it and one said it's six millimeters and the other said it's four millimeters. And we said, okay, then it's five millimeters. So this is a team profile, I would say. And so then the, the profiles that are available now and the ones that are coming out, do they represent different sets of assumptions about what part you're processing? Yes. We, we had now one which we call density or strong or so it's meant to achieve high density parts. But the majority of customers are asking I don't care about the density. It, it, it needs to be very nice from the surface point of view. And usually putting density or a very strong profile versus a, a, a beautiful profile or a beauty profile or surface profile is a little bit different. So we said, okay, we make another one. And then of course we said FFF, the unique, unique feature is true infills. So we need to have a profile which is strong enough to withstand debinding and sintering, but also the customer can make use of it. So basically we have one profile dedicated for infill. And the other one is one which is, we call it sketch, draft, or whatever you want to call it. I call it fast. 
because sometimes you need to have the part ready for shipping the next day or something like this. So you're not looking for a compromise, you're looking for a fast print, and that's the profile we have there. Okay, so they make a green part. Yes. And as you pointed out, it may not be as fragile as rumored because it, it has the, the polymer there to really hold it together and, and give it some resistance to handling, etc. So what models are there right now out there for what happens next? What we have, we have a distributor concept for our material. That means you always have a local partner. He speaks your language and he understands your needs. You also get the binding and sintering ticket from him. A ticket is basically, it's a number which enables you to have the binding and sintering service up to one kilogram of green parts, independent of the amount of parts. So if you have 1.5 kilogram of green parts, you would require two tickets. And we have one partner in the EU, which is the Elnik GmbH, which is performing the debinding and sintering for our EU customers. And we have a DSH in North America performing the debinding and sintering service for our customers there. It's a bi-weekly schedule. That means every two weeks, the equipment is booked for our materials. And that's it. That's all the magic, which is not magic. It's an industrial process. Let's talk about timing. So a customer, they've purchased the material, and now they can make the green parts they need, and they can, they can send them off uh, to be debinded. The debinding produces the brown parts. Is the debinding facility also the centering facility? It's always the same facility. So for, for MIM industry, the process needs to be very efficient for cost perspective. That means when we talk about MIM parts, we're talking about really low priced articles in, in millions. So we're talking about cents when there's negotiation about the price of a part. And usually those parts are everywhere. We're talking about a joint of your goggles. We're talking about the SD card holder of your mobile phone. It might be in frame in your laptop, but it also gears shifts in your automotive. Not talking about medical devices. We need to consider that all these consumer or automotive parts are very challenged in their prices. So if you think on metal injection molding, we are actually talking about very cheap parts. And this is only possible if you are really efficient, especially because your equipment is quite expensive. So debinding and centering are both very expensive industrial machines. So the equipment is also quite large. So that's not a lab scale. We're talking about hundreds of liters per machine volume you can put in. But the bottleneck of, of the investment here is always the size of the centering furnace. That means it's important that this machine runs as often as possible without any kind of process flow stop. And usually you would say, hmm, maybe the binding could it be, but not with catamold. That's why catamold is so popular. Basically, you can have two debinding runs with one centering run. That makes the, the whole process chain so efficient because the price of the machine and the process costs do not scale linear or exponential with the volume of the furnace. The larger the volume, the better the price for your individual part. Oh, interesting. And then the, the, the assumption is that sintering in hydrogen is expensive. This is only true if you consider the investment in the machine because hydrogen actually is quite cheap. So the running costs to run millions of parts with hydrogen is actually cheaper than to run it with argon because argon is quite expensive. And there's the additional advantage that hydrogen is not an inert gas, it's actually a reactive gas. It's supporting us instead of having oxygen inside with 
which is oxidizing our material. Hydrogen is doing the opposite. It's reducing. And in that sense, it's reducing the carbon content. So basically, the hydrogen strips out carbon, which is very critical for the properties of stainless steel, like 316L. So you have basically double advantage, cheaper, and you get a much cleaner part out of the process. So the customer sends a, a green part to a MEMS facility with the, the help of the, the local partner that has gotten them the ticket. So they have their part there, and then that facility, local to their territory, then will debind it and center it. What happens next? What is the what is the part like when it comes back from this process? And what are the steps that the customer usually takes to prepare it for a typical need they want after that? Well, first of all, he usually scaled the part before he printed it. That's something you should keep in mind and don't forget. <laughs> Because your part will shrink around about 16 to 20% in size. That means your part actually has a huge volume contraction. And this is usually accompanied with a little bit of deviations. That's why MIM or sintering technologies, it's called near net shape. Depending on the design, the print strategy and the part quality, this kind of deviation can be larger or less larger. Nevertheless, it's very reproducible. So my usual way of getting my part back from sintering is I get something to measure it. So either I 3D scan it or I take my calipers and then I measure the, the <laughs> dominant regions of my part. I start always with fixed values for scaling. And if I need it a little bit more precise, I usually measure it again. I change my scaling factors and I take the same print strategy I had before, but just with a scale part. And then I redo the whole process chain. And usually I'm very good to go afterwards. It's the same procedure the MIM houses do the same way. Yep. So this, some people expect that from MIM industry, that's the state of the art. You usually have your mold and you make 10 parts and you measure them and you redo your mold and you, you do them again. And th this can also be up to five times. We also say you will not need to have it five times. You can also print a part just five times with different scaling and you will receive one part which will definitely fit. Sometimes it's funny if you think on the original design, how it is designed, how much was driven by the technology which was available when the part was made. When we think about drilling a hole or a valve block, or sometimes it's stupid little details which are not required anymore, especially drilling holes. Sometimes if you have really do the re-engineering and you go to the application and you end up with the additive design, it's completely different. So first of all, I think that one of the major things is why does it look like like it looks like? It needs to be round. No, it does not. There's a liquid going through and the liquid does not care if it's round or if it's a, a square shape. Usually most of the parts are just dominated by drills. Could you share some of the insider tips that, that you've picked up on that you think would be really helpful for listeners to, to hear about? Things like people changing their designs to put key datum measuring points into that initial design to make evaluating it really fast? In my eye, if I see a part, I directly know what to do. That's quite unfair. But usually I try to, to look for functional areas. I want to understand how the function area will work in the final part. And then just by FFF, you have certain surface qualities. I always try to make the, the, the part as flat as possible. And I also try to make large areas parallel to the print bed. If you want to have a mark there, put it there. 
you, you want to have a, a straight line here, do it there. So this, there's not a big thinking there. It's only important to keep the functional area in mind and the orientation of the part for printing and debinding and sintering. This is Matt Griffin, host of Talking Additive, Ultimaker's 3D printing podcast. This is a critical time for industry to adopt 3D printing within aspects of manufacturing processes, safety, and efficiency as a part of stabilizing and strengthening this field in the new global economy. Let's keep this conversation going, just like the 3D printing labs, machines, and teams all across the world that have remained open and fully operational even during these complicated times. Enjoy Talking Additive? We'd appreciate it if you would subscribe and post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. We also encourage you to explore past episodes with guests Matthew Forrester at L'Oreal, Captain Brad Baker from the United States Naval Academy, Matt Tarosian from Jabil, and more. We will now return to Tobias to continue to explore some of the future opportunities made possible by metal fuse filament fabrication technology. So now that it's been out in the market for over a year and it's starting to really find adoption, are, are you starting to see some customers who don't have the same uh, chemistry background as you starting to get the strong instincts to be able to really leverage the format? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there are people out there, never heard of them, and they reach out to me and they have already metal parts, which I would have said they're not going to survive. So they already pushed by teaching themselves or they just followed their inner instincts, basically, and said, I want to make it brown part, it will be critical. So I need to make it really strong. So they already started by themselves to optimize parts for really high green part density. And they achieved really beautiful parts. Most of them are already experienced in heavy loading parts, having three to four kilogram prints. So you need to think about what you're going to do because you don't want to waste three days and three kilograms of material. When... Ultrafuse 316L launched initially, there were suggestions for the kinds of applications that would be best suited to this. And I've seen that evolve, at least as an outside observer, to heavily emphasizing industrial indirect parts, manufacturing jigs, fixtures, tooling, things like this. Do you want to talk about that transformation and why that application seems like a good match? Sure, I want to talk about it. The application spectra is so broad. So from little action figures, logos, up to a functional prototype, there's nothing which I can exclude. It's everything is there. Everybody has a different background and I cannot say our segment is automotive because that's that's not true. It's everybody. It's from private up to medical. Everybody's testing the material. We promote it maybe as jigs and fixtures, but the customer who bought the material has maybe another plan for it. So it's hard for me. I've seen everything. I've seen people talking about 5,000 parts as a small series. I've talked to people about a large series with 5,000 parts. So it's also a question, who are you talking to? If I talk to automotive for 5,000, that's, that's called a pre-development phase of a product. If I talk to somebody else, he says 5,000 over five years. I mean, at the beginning, we had a catamult experience and we looked with the eye into the market with uh, metal injection molding. So the assumption was that the metal injection molding market is exactly uh, where our product will be suited the best. was not the best assumption. So actually, we realized that just by the surface finish of the part, 
we exclude a large group of applications because like I already said, a MIM customer wants to have a MIM surface. He's not accepting uh, FFF surface. So the, the user group actually was brilliant, but the customer group was used to have a, just another kind of product. Now entering jigs and fixtures was for me the reasonable step because what you need is usually you need something which is low in complexity, but it just supports you in your daily business and you have a really huge payback from it. And, and still for me, a final part is no problem, but I'm very sure people would only implement it if the customer will not see it. Some of the people in the industry driving in this direction and more and more customers are accepting it, but those products are then also usually driven by additive manufacturing. So it's the additive manufacturing user group accepting those kind of services and products, but the rest of the consumer market, which is not in that field, maybe does not even know that it exists, is used what he is usually consuming. And then he's like, it does look different. It's not what I'm used to. So let's take this into that next step and let's talk about what impact do you expect having the opportunity to use technology like Metal FFF using these pathways? How do you think it will start to influence design products and processes? That's an excellent question. I think it will be first small champions, pioneers doing it with products which are very specific, but I'm also sure that at a certain point, brackets and stuff like this will also be replacing conventional spare parts. It's not necessarily clear to people when they first think about these things. People who are new to additive, they're expecting for a like a single machine and process solution to solve whatever their engineering problem is. Over time, they realize that it, it probably should be a combination and that you can start to really better understand the strengths. You can get a fully functional, high-performance 316L part for quite a fraction of the cost of using an industrial polymer printer to work in peak. And that, mm -hmm. that is not clear to people because they don't expect that. It's a new concept. Thinking additive means for me to have the application in mind, the requirements and the, the space I have for my design. And then additive manufacturing starts because you can have the best process, you can tweak your process, but everything starts with a really good design. And the design needs to be for the technology you have in mind. And you also need to know, maybe you do it a little bit different, like you would do it for SLS or for SLA, but you do it here and now like this for that technology, and you have a huge added value. People always think on support printing, support printing, support printing. You could add little features to the actual design. You could get around using support. In the end, it makes the part even cheaper. I, I challenge our technology every time in every application. I, I don't like to say we do it additive because it's cool, because in the end, the customer is paying for it and you can only be successful if you can compete with conventional technology. I doubt that the supply chain will change what they already have established to introduce a new product, a new technology, if they already can get it for the same price. You don't just use it because it's cool to mm -hmm. print additive. You use it because this is the right route that brings value to compete with producing it traditionally. Absolutely. Our brand name is Forward AM. So we are entitled to push additive manufacturing. But for me, manufacturing means you have to compete. And your competition is state of the art since, I don't know, 80 years. 
And those technologies are also evolving. So they are getting better and also from the price point of view, more advanced. The same software which helps us to uh, make additive manufacturing also helps uh, conventional manufacturing. So we, we cannot just say, use our filament and you will automatically be cheaper and whatever. That's not true. And also to say, if you want to go in, into an industrial application with competition, you also will need to adapt the design to the technology because in the end you save money if you adapt it in the one or the other direction, especially for debinding and sintering. It's a difference if you have a one part or if you have a part with, with a support material. It's a difference if you have a, a part which is changed here and there and you don't have overhangs. So the scrap rate is reduced. The tolerances are getting tighter. And all these things needs also to be considered if you think of manufacturing, not talking about prototyping, but manufacturing. And it's unbelievable how good and cheap some designs can be manufactured in conventional way where additive manufacturing is just out of scope. Additive manufacturing will not replace conventional manufacturing because mostly it does not make sense. But we have so much applications where it's vice versa. So it's very complicated and, and costly to make it in this technology where you could have it in additive manufacturing or the hybrid solution. I want to have it additive with the added value, but I also want to have my CNC finished surface, functional area, whatever. And I think this combination, this will be successful. That's something that we're seeing in the Ultimaker ecosystem. You know, I, I think couple of years ago, there was so much attention on maybe additive only projects and people finding solutions to monolithic prints and stuff. And now we're not that interested in that based on what we've learned from our customers. We want to see it as a tool among many and really solving the right problems because then everybody's happy as opposed to forcing the process to try to, to, to make a part that's just really difficult. Absolutely. And, and the funny thing is if you go into the real world and you look for parts, most of them are hybrid solutions. So everything is a combination. Usually it's a CNC part, but there's a welded part on it, or it's an injection molded part and you, you have a welded inlet, or just going to a tier two from an OEM supplier, integrating parts with different kind of manufacturing technologies. It's, it's the way it is. Hybrid solution, taking the advantage of a specific technology is actually the advantage you have. You can choose. You want to have this group or this feature from that technology? Hell yeah, do it. My problem is I'm very German and I'm a German engineer and I love to solve problems. That's why my view is always focused on problems. But I need this because I, I do it with the eyes of the customer. I try to be ahead of the problem to create the solution. And I'm so happy that since this year, we're really moving forward into the right direction of the product. That we in, in the team are capable of, of rethinking our product and that we started to put our product into the right light. Like it is also seen from the customer point of view and that we head now in the right direction with, with some major changes. And I hope next year you will see what when I say that we changed some of the business models and some of the materials. Thank you, Tobias, very much for joining us today and sharing your expertise and your deep knowledge of this field. It's very helpful to us. Yeah, uh, Matt, thank you very much for the interview. Thanks again to Tobias Rodelmeyer, Business Development Manager for the Ecosystem for Ultrafuse Metal Filaments for BASF 3D Printing Solutions for joining us for this episode. 
We will now go to our virtual interview with Roger Selbing from the BASF 3D Printing Solutions Polymer Extrusion Materials team to introduce the plastics side of their FFF offerings. My name is Roger Selbing. I'm responsible for the global sales of the plastic filaments within uh, BASF Forward AM. And our group is called the Additive Extrusion Solutions Team, which actually is everything related to, to extrusion to the FFF technology. Thank you for, for being on Talking Additive and sharing your background from BASF. Oh, no, you're welcome. And then I really appreciate the opportunity to share our side of the story. Before you joined BASF, you were working in filaments already, correct? That's correct. So actually, I started in the additive manufacturing industry in 2013. And I started in the sales of equipment. And in 2015, I joined Innofil 3D, which was a manufacturer of filaments. And in 2017, Innofil was acquired by BASF. And that's how I became part of the BASF Forward AM team. BASF is the largest chemical company in the world and has made materials that have been in, in all kinds of manufacturing and fabrication. Is it true that they hadn't offered extruded materials for like 3D printing before they acquired Innofil? That's correct. Actually, in the year that Innofil was acquired, the strategic decision was made to enter, let's say, the FFF technology. But before that, in 2015, the development of the metal filament already started. So there were some activities ongoing in entering the FFF field, but it was more related to metal. And in 2017, the decision was made to found a company, BASF 3D Printing Solutions, to really focus on all technologies within additive manufacturing. And then also the decision was made that FFF plastic should be a part of that. What introduced you first to material science and additive manufacturing? So the funny thing is that it was actually a TV show. And it was back in, I think, early 2013, when Eric De Bruyne, who is one of the founders of, <laughs> of uh, Ultimaker, he came on a very popular Dutch TV show. There was this technology segment, and then he demonstrated 3D printing and FFF for the first time. And I saw it and was like, wow, I, I, I want to be a part of that. So yeah, I think it was eight or nine months later, and I was active in the sales of, of equipment. So that was really my first, I saw it and I, I was like, okay, I want to be a part of that because I really, I felt drawn to it. You, you saw this possibility, you had a vision for what this could be and do and jumped right in. Yeah, it, it, and I think it's just around the time when desktop printing got its momentum. That's where you guys saw this spike in development of, of open FFF machines. As soon as I got introduced to the technology, I realized that you, you, needed, you needed to be able to design if, you, if you're not able to design for 3D printing, you're not able to really benefit because then you had, back then you had Thingiverse and I thought, okay, after five Thingiverse design, you, you will lose interest because you want to you wanna make and create stuff that's, that's from you, that's from yourself. So that's actually when at that time I, I created the strategy that you needed to go for companies that actually made products because back then it was more consumer focused but I, I, I didn't see that consumers would be able to, to really design parts that could be 3D printed. I immediately thought, okay, the best target audience would be companies that actually uh, have engineers and designers which are capable of, of designing for uh, the technology. Well, it seemed very forward thinking. Certainly these days at Ultimaker, we're pretty much entirely B2B focused on, on that market for, for that very reason. Yeah. 
Okay, so now let's shift gears to uh, focus on where you work, mm -hmm. both the company and the field. Yeah, I work for BASF 3D Printing Solutions. Uh, we are focused on five business units, and each business unit reflects the technology. We have powder bed fusion, we have liquid photopolymers, we have FFF for plastics, and we have FFF for metals. And the uh, fifth business unit is a service unit, which is focused on post-processing services, but also on design and also design optimization services. How much do you interact with the other teams? Uh, regularly, especially of course with with the service team, where we have where we, where we have interactions about the uh, designs. With the other teams, is more about industries application. In many cases, OEM customers working with multiple technologies, which we try to be supportive the best way we can to offer customers more like an integrated solution. Because we, we believe it's actually it's not about the technology. Each technology has its own benefits and, and downsides. And we try to bring it in a way that we're complementary to one another. And Forward AM, did that name come with the beginning of the division or is that a more recent development? The company entity is BSF 3D Printing Solutions, but Forward AM is the brand name. All the products, all the marketing is Forward AM as a brand. For the powders, the products are called Ultra Synth. For the resins, the products are called Ultra Cure. And for the metal filaments and the plastic filaments, the products are called Ultra Fuse. And actually, Ultra is a trade name for many of the BASF products. So tell me about BASF. What is the history of this company? How did it become uh, the largest chemical provider in the world? And, and how did that lead to the interest in starting a focus on additive manufacturing? Yeah. So now BASF is active in, let's say, all part of the value chain when it comes to the chemical industry. So from basic chemicals to raw materials to produce consumer products and products. And BSF was founded in 1865. So it's a very old company. And over the years, it grew from a company which started with the production of dyes to a company which is active in all parts of the chemical industry. So at the moment, there are globally 150,000 employees and are 361 production sites. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. Within our company, Forward AM is a separate business unit. We can use the, the infrastructure BASF has for EHS or for logistics or for R&D, but we have the freedom to make our own choice and, and, and to operate, uh, to be able to keep up with market developments. And another very, let's say, a strong point that we have is that we are not limited to BASF resins. We can develop a material where we see there's a need. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know about that. Yeah. So Tobias so had mentioned that from a certain perspective, 3D printing solutions is a startup, though they're leaning on quite a few resources. I would say it's comfortable to have this big mother watching over you and to have this infrastructure because, for example, there's a lot of knowledge when it comes about compliance. To, to local regulation and what you need to take into consideration when you want to export to certain countries or to certain regions. There's a lot of knowledge when it comes to uh, chemistry, but there's also a large network in chemistry because in some cases, 
companies are uh, a competitor of BASF. But when you look upstream uh, in the value chain, BASF is a supplier. So in that sense, it opens a lot of opportunities for us. When is it time to stand on your own two feet and when is it necessary to, to rely on, on the knowledge and the infrastructure BASF has to offer. And in that sense, additive manufacturing is still in the pioneering phase. So you also need to take responsibility and try to be a pioneer in that sense. Additive manufacturing is, is I think, one of the key growth potentials that BASF sees for the long run. And the reason why BASF entered the additive manufacturing industry is that with a lot of manufacturing companies, that there are a lot of stages in development and also stages in scale up. So when you're still in the development phase, the volume is small, but once the volume starts growing, you risk missing the boat once the demand grows. If you as a supplier are not part of this early stage where you are a development partner, that's a risk. It's an investment in being part of, of multiple stages in, in a product life cycle. In the beginning stage of a product life cycle, the volumes are low. Then when you start to scale up, the volumes are high. But when you go into the end phase of the product life cycles, the volumes again start to become low. So you need a, a manufacturing tool to be able to meet those demands. And this is where I believe where additive manufacturing can add value. And this would also mean for a company like BASF is where you can add value. It's not, not saying, okay, we can only service you and supply you for large volumes. No, we can be a partner for you in all the stages of the product lifecycle. What types of materials are, are represented in the Ultrafuse line? We're currently in a stage of, of showing capabilities. So we offer a broad range of materials and we have created these categories. So for example, we have a category of standard materials, which include PLA and PET. We have a category of sustainable materials like PETG. We have a category of engineering materials, unfilled engineering materials like a PP or a modified PLA or a modified ABS. We also have a category of reinforced uh, materials like PET carbon fiber, PAHT carbon fiber. Uh, and we also added the extrant portfolio to this range. We have support material, PVOH. We have a flexible category with TPU and TPC. And finally, we have a high temperature resistance category with PPSU. For the last year, I've seen a high growth in the carbon fiber reinforced PA materials. And one of the feedback that we got from a customer in the automotive is that for them, they use it as a functional prototype because they were able to modify the design in such a way they were really capable of uh, replicating to 95% of the injection molding values that you were able to achieve. So this is a definite trend that I see is that if you are able to optimize your design for the shaping technique, that you could really benefit from the actual end result. Would you be willing to share some of the materials that are specifically on the Ultimaker material marketplace? At the moment, we have seven materials in the Ultimaker marketplace. We have a PET, we have a recycled PETG, we have ASA, we have a PET carbon fiber, we have the PAHT carbon fiber, we have the PPGF30, and we have the uh, Ultrafuse 316L. And how do customers find the, these materials? We work with a network of resellers and distributors globally. So this would be for our customers the, the easiest way to get access to our materials. What sort of transformations are you expecting to see in Forward AM in the next coming years? as far as like selection of what to add, 
demands from customers, things like this? Um, so I, as I mentioned earlier, we have a very broad portfolio. I think Ultraview 316L has definitely been a, a game changer for for many FFF users. The idea that you can print uh, metal on an open platform is mind-blowing to, I think, to many established users. But then we showed the parts and it was, this is really printed on an Ultimaker? Yes, these parts were printed on an Ultimaker. And I think then the next step in development will be more customer-focused developments. So we see this already growing with where customers have really specific applications in the construction industry or in the consumer goods industry. If a, if a customer is willing to, to collaborate, the potential is there. And I think that's a perfect place to go out. Thank you again for joining us today, for uh, talking at it. I really appreciate hearing your thoughts and insights. No, Matt, uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. And it was very, very pleasant to share these ideas with you. Thanks again to Roger Selbing, Head of Sales for Additive Extrusion Solutions within BASF's 3D printing solutions on the polymer-based extrusion filaments. We hope that you have enjoyed our 16th episode for the Talking Additive podcast featuring the BASF 3D printing solutions team. To learn more about their materials, check out their profiles in the Ultimaker Marketplace or visit them online at forward-am.com. If you have questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag Talking Additive, all one word. In two weeks, we will return with episode 17, which will introduce a new approach to Talking Additive for the following three shows. Episodes built around a topic with a number of guest interviews. Episode 17 features application engineers, both the excellent team at Ultimaker and AE experts from a few of our partners and allies, working together to paint an updated portrait of the expanding role that FFF plays in functional prototyping, manufacturing processes and maintenance, and even in production parts. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at TalkingAdditive.com. Thanks again to Tobias Rottlemeyer and Roger Selbing from BASF 3D Printing Solutions and Forward AM for joining us for this episode. Our series producer is Hanna Gabrielle Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos, music and episode sound mix by Brian Scarry and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbird's Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.